This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That I'm joined tonight on the Football CFB podcast by a very special guest. That man is the leading sports lawyer, Daniel G, the author of the book, Dundeal. Also happens to be a very good friend of mine now. Daniel, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure is all mine. And um, yeah, a very proud moment for me to be on uh, on your podcast. And uh, yeah, I hope we're going to go into a little bit of detail on how we met our story and um, and you becoming um, yeah a celebrity more so than uh, than most these days. <laughs> um, I want to talk to you first of all about the current situation. It's unprecedented. Schools have closed down. Lots of us find ourselves in society in a position working from home. How do you see this situation transpiring for the world of football? You'd obviously in the inside as a as a football lawyer, a sports lawyer. How do you see the next few months going with potentially no football at all and, and how do you see it turning out? Because it's a situation we've never been in before. Yeah, exactly. And um, there's, there's no easy answers to any of this. And, you know, we are at the virus's control, not the other way around. I think is, the, is one of the things that I've I read recently and I, and I completely agree with it, which is, you know, we can put in the best plans and the best processes to be able to mitigate and to deal with particular things. But, you know, it's looking very likely the Olympics is off. Euro 2020 is already gone. The the Premier League season um, is going to be indefinitely um, extended. And, and you know, that, that wording in itself suggests that things aren't going to start up anytime soon again. And, you know, ultimately this is going to be governed by governmental, um, you know, advice and restriction, really. And, you know, um, it's it, it obvious, pretty obvious that I think the only way that these games, a lot of different games are going to get played, query at which levels all of these games are going to get played at, um, are going to be behind closed doors. Um, because um, so long as uh, sort of circumstance can dictate, you know, only needing a small number of people to be controlled in a controlled environment. Um, all of these games need to be played and televised. Otherwise, there's going to be significant losses for um, lots of clubs across different leagues. And that, I guess, is the priority. But the issue is, if it almost feels completely um, bizarre, even suggesting that, um, you know, everyone needs to be thinking about football in the in the wider context of what is going on yeah. in you know in the world in Europe with you know unfortunately horrendous scenes throughout Europe in terms of rates um you know and you know death rates unfortunately it's just it's just terrible so uh, in in the wider context you know sport is completely irrelevant but you know a lot of people over a few days that I've been speaking to have been saying you know it's it's a major part of you know, the national psyche, it's important that everybody has that escapism, that has that ability to be able to connect with a wider community um, in 
as a liberal pastime, and that's obviously football to a huge number of us. And as a result, you know, lots of people need that outlet and, and having that ability to watch, even if it's not uh, live in the stands, but be able to watch live games um, on the television at some point is uh, is going to be an important part of um, uh, trying to get things back to semi-normal for a while to come. Something I'm interested to ask you about is football player contracts. In your book, Dundeal, which... As I've said to you before, I wrote to you about it before we'd, we'd even started talking. It's a, it's a great book. It's a book that I really enjoy. And something I'm interested to ask you about is how you think players' contracts could be affected by this. Um, the season normally for lower league clubs would end in May time. The season's been delayed indefinitely. Is there a way FIFA, UEFA, the FA, the SFA, one of these governing bodies can can sort of bring an arm, armistice, in, for want of a better phrase, and, and ensure players have to stay with their club until the end of the current season? Or is that just a legal minefield, potentially? There's lots of different things all in the midst. The one is really, as, as I think you alluded to, the idea of um, what happens if a season is extended past June 30th and there are a number of players out of contract um, from the 1st of July onwards, is there some type of obligatory requirement for um, players to have to remain with clubs and sign up to temporary um, contracts? And I think that would look to be seem to be difficult simply because they would need agreement between two parties generally, um, and it might well be that that agreement can be reached. But I think um, uh, putting some type of diktat in place saying that all players that are out of contract if the club want them, has to remain with that club. Um, it's pretty draconian. At the same time, the other issue, exactly again, as you alluded to, is what happens if players are out of contract, for example, um, but the transfer window hasn't opened and might not happen for several months. Um, are clubs going to um, still um, try and sign those players, sign them to employment contracts, um, if they are able to sign them to employment contracts, but know that they're not going to play those players until the new season, which might be several months off. So there's, there's that particular question. Then there's obviously a wider question as when the transfer window will open, will potentially close, um, how long it will be open for, what restrictions might be on place. And you know a wider systemic point, which is if clubs are in significant financial hardship, um, uh, are the same type of transfer amounts going to be spent this summer? Um, are actually lower league clubs going to be more reliant on the larger clubs that may have more um, uh, financial reserves to be able to then um, you know, spend um, and provide transfer fees down the leagues and provide that trickle-down effect? Um, tons of questions that we, we have no idea of the answer for at the moment, but that's why, as you mentioned again, there are plenty of stakeholder committees going on at the moment trying to plough through different eventualities and see what can be um see what can be um, agreed between various parties. Before we talk in depth about Dundeal and, and the the process behind writing the book, I'm interested to ask you a question. I know you quite well. Now, Daniel, some people may not be aware of what a sports lawyer or a football lawyer does on a day-to-day basis. Could you just give us a wee bit more clarity in terms of what does your role as a football lawyer involve? Of course. Um... It can be lots of things. I mean, the 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 very unglamorous, non-glamorous way of saying what I do is I'm I'm basically a contract lawyer, I'm a compliance lawyer, I'm a regulations lawyer, I'm a disputes lawyer, I'm a reputation management lawyer, um, 
the the sexy way of putting it is I'm a football lawyer because all of the things I've just described are the types of things that I'll sort of deal with day to day if it's contracts in terms of employment contracts or transfer agreements, if it's um, a brand deal or a boot deal or an ambassadorial deal, um, if it's compliance with all of the different FIFA, FA, Premier League, EFL, UEFA regulations uh, to do with players, to do with agents, to do with transfers, to do with lots of different um, compliance and restriction areas. Um, it could be disputes that come up between um, the FA sanctioning a player for something to bring the game into disrepute. It might be an agent suing a former player or a player suing a former agent or a club suing a player or a player suing a club for whatever reasons. Um, so all of those type of issues are the type of stuff that I tend to deal with day in, day out. Um, I, I tend to work on the, the uh, player and agent side. Um, I used to in the past do a lot more sort of um, club side work and that could that involved a number of different um, takeovers um, um, of particular high profile clubs. Um, but now as well as I, I do still do some um, takeover work when particular high profile matters occur, usually my day to day is um, working with players and agents. Day to day, as you've said now, is working with players and agents. But as you've just mentioned, you've been involved in in takeovers at a very high profile level for a number of years. And I want to come to the book Done Deal. It's critically acclaimed. It's been a best selling book. It's been nominated um, for awards. And what I want to ask you about first of all is what was the thinking behind the book? And the foreword is written by Gianluca Vialli, very respected former footballer and someone who's had his hand in football business as well. And One of the most telling quotes from Gianluca is, he describes yourself as, I cannot think of a better person to reveal the inside story of this fascinating industry. So what was the reasoning behind the book? (laughs) Yeah, I owe Luca a lot of money from that. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, so uh, originally the idea was, because I'd I'd written a lot of um, football law and football industry blogs, the idea originally was almost to maybe try and make a book compendium, which was, um, you know, put all of my blogs that I'd written over the years on lots of things with transfers or FFP or third-party ownership or disputes or disciplinary matters and uh, and the rest um, into some type of compendium that could be could be published. And um, I then spoke, I, I got introduced to my now book agent, a great guy called David Luxton, um, and he said I'd put a, a proposal together and um, do a sample chapter. And so I did a sample chapter, which is now effectively moved into the, the, the transfer and contracts negotiation chapter, um, as well as a, yeah, the proposal, which was more or less a eight to 10,000 word um, uh, document basically setting out what I thought I could I could write on um, and and that took me the best part of maybe about five or six months to write actually so I knew I'd probably only get one spot at this and uh, yeah the story goes that then I wrote I sent it into David didn't hear too much from him for a while needless to say it was because he was working on loads of other much more high profile things um, and books with, with great sports individuals um, at the time um, and uh, I sort of maybe two or three months later came back and said after a while like the sheepish um, the sheepish wannabe author who probably realised um, he was going to get um, a, reje- a very nice kind rejection email that um, yeah David mentioned in the re- response to me asking you know if we'd gone anywhere with the book proposal that um, a few publishers were interested and would have interest in having a few meetings which was just like you know music to my ears it was fantastic I, I, I didn't really hold up much hope is the real truth 
Um, but once I had that glimmer of hope, then um, I, I needed to sort of grasp onto any opportunity to be able to get the book out there. In terms of getting the book out there, it's you, you've been able to do that very well. And in terms of writing a book, you mentioned the fact it's a compendium of of so much, so many of the aspects you work on in a, in a, a sort of daily and yearly basis. Was bringing those aspects together difficult or because you'd been working on them for so long, did the writing process just seem quite natural? It was still a difficult process. Um, I think I probably had about 20 or 30% of the material, at least in some form, that I would add to, that I would um, edit, that I would put in in different form um, and update, just simply because I had quite a lot, I'd written quite a lot. I'd written probably over about 130 blogs by that stage, some short, some long, some more detailed, some more technical, some more practical than others. So I had an idea of of how I wanted things and that's actually part of the, the story of how things um, started really because you know I had effectively Bloomsbury my publisher gave me about 18 months to write to, to write the first draft and the idea effectively was to um, well I, I had the chapters everything starting to be laid out and I sort of I thought I could probably have a little bit of a break before I started and then my wife and I hotly sat down to talk through actually when I would actually have to have the time to do this so I just uh, we'd had a our second child. Um, she, uh, Olivia was a newborn at that point. Um, it had an eldest busy who was a couple of years old. Um, I just started a new job at Sheridan's. This is now uh, five and a bit years ago. Um, I had to build a practice. I had to you know develop business and everything else that comes with it. So it was like, where are you going to fit in this time? So <clears throat> we sort of worked that I'd need to spend four hours on a, on a Sunday evening, three hours on a Monday evening, three hours on a Tuesday evening. Um, so 10 hours a week, basically, and it turned out near enough two and two and a half years really worth of um, editing and trying in order to get to about 80, 85,000 words um, for a manuscript. So um, it was a, it was a tough process actually, but once you're in the routine and the routine of writing, um, I sort of found comfort in the routine, but I think if in the beginning I would have been thinking about how am I going to write 85,000 words and uh, how am I going to try and do that on a regular basis, I think it would have um, sent me over the edge. So just, you know, having a structure and having um, a sort of plan in place, which was this week I need to write this section on third-party investment or this week I need to do this transfer element or whatever, then um, then that was something. But it did become a little bit um, all-encompassing for a while and did take over uh, holidays and breaks and um, date nights and the rest. So it's, uh, yeah, it didn't come without its difficulties, but in the end it's something I'm yeah very proud of. Absolutely, and one of the chapters I'd like to focus on just now are, is a chapter on players' transfers and contracts, and specifically one of the things I'm interested to ask you about, and it's something that, that you've enlightened me with over the last few months, and it's something that I think is a misconception within the game. A lot of people have this assumption, Daniel, you'll know this, that you mentioned it in the book, that when Cristiano Ronaldo, for instance, joined Juventus for roughly around €100 million, Euros, a lot of people automatically on social media platforms say, oh, Juventus will earn that money back just through shirt sales alone. Is it as simplistic as that, or is there a lot more to a transfer than just recouping money through shirt sales? Yeah, I think it's important to note that, you know, on the whole, I'm not saying that particular 
instances like Ronaldo or Beckham or extremely, extremely high profile players um, that can possibly earn um, the club some money by way of increased merchandise sales. But on the whole, um, in my experience and based on my understanding of um, a number of um, different types of um, apparel manufacturing um, agreements and conversations I have with, with plenty of people in the industry, it's pretty rare um, for clubs to earn the transfer fee and or wages back from particular transfers by way of shirt sales simply because of the way that shirt manufacturer deals are struck between clubs and the manufacturers if it's Adidas or Nike or New Balance or Puma or whoever else it might be and that's usually because the, the club will probably receive generally an advance uh, and in an advance it can be a certain amount of money which is provided to the club usually on an annual basis or spread over a particular set of period of time but let's just call it on an annual basis um, and effectively the, the club is receiving that advance because the manufacturer knows that they're going to um, sell a certain amount of shirts and that advance is basically to provide some type of certainty for the for the club but at the same time um, usually that means that whilst that advance or that um, money flow is provided for on the whole what that also means is that the manufacturer will tend there's obviously different situations and different high-profile clubs that might do it slightly differently. We'll talk about Liverpool maybe in a second. Um, they will tend then um, that the money that is received then by web shirt sales and other types of memorabilia that come within the, the deal, all of that money, all of those sales up to a certain limit will actually go to the manufacturer and won't necessarily go back to the club. Now, if certain performance targets are hit, like, for example, 2 million shirts are sold or a million shirts are sold or 500,000 shirts are sold, at that particular limit, whatever that agreement comes to, then it might well be that actually the club receives a royalty um, on those sales amounts. But usually those targets that have to be hit in order to start those royalty payments can be quite high. So what tends to be the case is that clubs, general clubs, and even some high-profile clubs won't tend to recoup or receive extra royalties because of that initial advance. That initial advance, they may not actually ever get to a revenue share possibility with particular um, uh, with particular apparel brands, but that can sometimes be the exception to the rule. Ronaldo might be one where a lot of shirt sales may be made. We still don't know the exact figures. Um, and there may be um, a better split between um, those um, those sums that are provided to Juventus and the sums that actually then go to the, the kit manufacturer. But the, the general rule of thumb is that doesn't tend to happen too often. Staying on the element of transfers, it's something that you know yourself is, is, is something that is really just a part of part and parcel of football in this country now, especially with the transfer deadline, the yellow tie sort of culture we've, we've created in the last sort of 10, 15, 20 years, especially with social media. What I want to ask you from working in the inside, Daniel, is what goes on in a transfer that us as football fans maybe aren't fully aware of? Um, it, it, lots of things um, is the uh, is the truth. Um, I think one of the biggest misconceptions generally is that um, fans seem to think that um, 
a deal can be done very quickly and that there isn't that much work that goes into particular deals. Um, you know, I know a lot of deals, a lot of agents, I speak to a lot of agents that work on high profile deals regularly. Um, and I get involved in, luckily get involved in quite a few of them as well. Um, that I know have been on the cards for being planned for six, 12, 18 months in advance, really. Um, effectively what an agent is trying to do is to try and put different pieces of the puzzle together in order to understand what clubs want, what um, the sporting director and the technical director are keen on, whether it's a right back, a centre forward, a left back, a defensive centre midfielder, knowing the, the price categories, the wage demands, understanding if this player goes to a particular club, then this club might be able to afford this player. And the way I best describe it is trying to play um, multiple games of 3D chess. It's like one move in one um, board makes um, a, a change in a move from another board. So understanding how the industry works and getting that broad um, transparency as to how things work uh, becomes very important. It's just simply not the case that um, a club will phone up an agent and say, can we have your player? Um, it very rarely happens that way. Um, usually it is agents liaising with chief executives, chief scouts, technical directors, chiefs of football, uh, managers, chairmen, directors of football, whoever else it might be, and then trying to piece everything together so that they have the best information to be able to understand what might be best for their player moving into a club, moving out of a club, and everything else that comes with it as a result. Without asking you to name names, because I know I would never ask you to breach confidentiality, how difficult is it when you're involved in a deal and it collapses at the last minute to, to sort of try and pick up the pieces and maintain good relationships between clubs, agents... Uh, players and, 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 and managers? Well, the, the truth is, a lot of the time, it, um, the transfers um, don't happen for lots of different reasons. It might not necessarily be the player or the agent. Um, it might well be the club. Um, it, it may be that time gets the better of um, particular situations and the time pressures involved and you can't come to commercial agreements or otherwise. But, you know, ultimately, if a deal isn't done, um, it's because it could be lots of reasons. It could be medical. It could be commercial terms aren't met. It's because maybe the player doesn't want to move. Maybe the player will only move for X amount of money. Maybe it's actually needs longer financial security in a four-year deal rather than a two-year deal. So, yeah, I, I think it's a way of um, understanding the industry, which is you can get into quite pressurized situations quite late on um, in the window. And ultimately, um, each party doesn't want to be forced to do something they don't necessarily want to do. So there's plenty of times where deals don't happen and get over the line. Um, but ultimately, everybody knows that if that is the case, everyone's going to hopefully be uh, uh, respectful and understand the position. And it might well be that just uh, as a deal didn't happen in one window, it can be resurrected in um, in the next. And it might well be that, let's just take one example of um, uh, a player over the summer, which only has one year left on 
um, his or her deal knows that if the club doesn't sell them in that window, then they can sign a pre-contract um, to a foreign club um, in the six months later. So there are lots of different dynamics that then change as a result, really. So it might be in that, in that instance, the player's interest not to get transferred um, in the summer window because they know that they could sign a lucrative Bosman six months later. So, um, you know, ultimately, it's always a game of, um, again, as I mentioned, a bit of a game of 3D chess. And there can be lots of reasons why a deal doesn't happen. It might not necessarily just be one side. It's usually a bit of a combination of um, both sides not being able to compromise enough or understand the value that one side thinks um, is attached to, to the other. Something I'm interested to ask you personally is, in terms of transfer deals when they are completed, I've, I've always wondered why some deals are described as undisclosed fees. Why would a deal have to be undisclosed? What are the legal ramifications or the reasons behind that? Well, you see, I, 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 that's one of the things I find quite um, interesting about the industry generally is that... Um, I'm always I always try and flip it the other way, which is you know transfer agreements um, as uh, legal documents are confidential, which means that everything contained in a transfer agreement should be confidential between the parties. So I'm always slightly um, intrigued by everybody generally knowing um, particular amounts that have been paid or reported or alleged to have been paid for particular players where that should be confidential between the parties. Now, there can be lots of reasons why um, those fees are disclosed. For example, it might be that that shows ambition of the buying club. It may also show um, savviness of the, the selling club to be able to get um, a large amount of money. However, that is spread out over a particular period of time. And the exact converse position is also true when um, amounts are not disclosed. It might well be that it's not disclosed because the selling club doesn't want the rest of the market to uh, know how much money they um, have to be able to use to be able to transfer, um, uh, to be able to purchase players in that transfer window or in future transfer windows. And it may well be that the selling club, for example, doesn't want to be able to show how much they've got or not got for um, a particular prized asset um, or otherwise. So if I give you a brief example that came out, I think, in um, an athletic podcast that um, uh, I think it was um, David Ornstein did with Damien Kamali, um, I think about um, uh, three weeks or so ago, he mentioned that when he was working on the transfer of... Um, Andy Carroll from Newcastle to Liverpool at the same time that Suarez was coming in. Um, Torres was obviously leaving for um, 50 million um, to uh, Chelsea on a similar transfer window. And once um, it was in that, I, I, I believe that they'd agreed to transfer fee around 20, uh, I think 30, maybe 25 or 30 million, maybe 30 million for Carroll. And as soon as Chelsea heard, sorry, as soon as Newcastle heard that Chelsea were buying Torres for 50, they increased it, but they increased the offer, they increased the offer by another to 5 million. So on one of the days before the window was closing, Newcastle simply said, either 35 now even though the night before they did with 30 so you can see how all of these things play out uh, in the media or otherwise and why sometimes clubs want, clubs want to keep a, a closer handle on um, on the disclosed figures you mentioned the fact that transfers are normally organized well in advance whether that's through agents people like yourself in the in the, the sports law industry when it comes to transfer deadline day deals are those organised maybe at the start of a window 
but maybe it's third choices and that's why there's a mad rush at the end. It's not just a case, as you've said earlier, clubs just phoning up player X and saying, oh, please come to us now with three hours to go. Yeah, it's usually when there's lots of different moving pieces and they start falling into place because maybe a first pick has gone somewhere else and then the second pick is a possibility, but that only happens if late on once the first pick has been accepted or rejected and things start moving once fluidity and liquidity starts in the system. So that might be then a transfer fee goes through and then one club has more money to be able to spend and you have a sort of cascade of cascading effects so that one, one player move um, effectively um, dislodges a particular player at a particular um, squad uh, and they're placed within the squad which then leaves more money to be able to then purchase that player and that player then dislodges someone else or the possibility of that happening means another club has to find a replacement so again it's almost that process where um, a couple of dominoes that then the domino effect starts for, a bit, for some clubs when transactions actually happen cause ripple effects um, in other parts of the market. And it's only once those transactions happen can then other reactive transactions happen because um, of those first moves. And that can sometimes happen quite late. So some moves are very much dependent on other transfers and otherwise, um, you know, transactions happening. And it is those final few days where clubs and agents and players are placed in positions of you either move or you don't move and if you do and you don't then those those actions have implications um, for then how the system then works for the last couple of days Fascinating, thank you for that and moving on from transfers to, to managers something that intrigues lots of fans is whenever a, a high profile manager loses their job Lots of fans tend to focus on the finances involved when it comes to the manager's termination. From your perspective, again, confidentiality, don't want you to name any names, but when a manager's appointed at a club, do the club and the manager, is there normally a sort of agreed amount for termination if that day ever comes? To Or is it a case of it's just down to the individual clubs whether they enter into an agreement with a pre-agreed termination compensation amount um, in the first place? It's all of the above. There can be in a variety of different situations. There can be quite straightforward agreements where it's not particularly clear as to what happens, compensation at particular termination, particular termination provisions. can be lots of other uh, more nuanced and detailed clauses in managerial contracts whereby if we take, I think it's reported, uh, the reported David Moyes, Manchester United um, contract termination provisions. Um, effectively, even though he was provided with a six-year deal, um, in practice, what actually um, that meant was that, I think it was a six-year deal, I believe, um, that in practice what it meant was that even though he was paid X amount of money per year, if he didn't qualify or Man United didn't qualify for the Champions League, for a particular season, then Manchester United reportedly had the right to be able to terminate his deal, not for and not pay him out for the remaining however many years of the contract, but at a pre-agreed stipulated amount of however many million pounds it might have been. So um, it's those types of forward-thinking employment and managerial employment contracts that become very important. In the other converse way, what can sometimes happen is there can be buyout or release clauses um, for managers so that if um, a club really wants a particular manager that they have to pay 
particular amount of money in order to release that manager to, from their contract. So, um, yeah, termination can obviously happen uh, when things go bad. Termination can also happen at pre-agreed amounts when things are obviously going very well for the manager uh, and the manager wants to move on. And if they have a pretty savvy agent, um, there may well be a release clause or a buyout clause at a particular amount, um, which then effectively triggers that termination at that point. Another thing I'm interested to, to talk about is the rise of social media and how that affects footballers, clubs, yourself, everyone involved in the game, especially at the elite level. From your point of view, having worked alongside players, agents, managers, clubs for so long, is there are there, no, are there stipulations in a player's contract as to what they can and can't do in social media, especially now that it's, it's continued to grow? Yeah, so there's almost certainly there are um, social media guidelines that um, uh, clubs will ensure are effectively imposed on um, their players. And obviously, a lot of players um, can and have and will get into trouble for breaching um, those policies and guidelines. Now, um, we saw lots of instances of, over a particular period of time where um, the FA, for example, brought disciplinary cases against players who brought the game into disrepute. Um, and um, that's obviously a growing area. One of the things we talked about earlier as to what I do, which is effectively compliance. And that a lot of the time can be just making sure that players understand the perils of social media, but also the virtues and the positives that can come from, um, you know, positively engaging. And, you know, I think we've got a, a few new, newer generations of footballer um, who are, you know, savvy, um, uh, to how best to power their own profile across their digital channels. And that's a really important element, which is to try and show authenticity, uh, to try and show a, you know, a, an authentic voice actually talking about the things they want to talk about. Raheem Sterling with everything um, uh, um, inherently um, systemically uh, I might just say that sentence again if that's all right. Um, Ryan Sterling, for example, in relation to um, his um, very much targeted approach to um, racism, how to deal with particular elements, um, and his um, you know real principled stance. We have other footballers like Hector Bellerin, for example, who um, has a very specific um, voice in relation to. Um, fashion, in relation to veganism, in relation to sustainability, etc., and the environment. And even, you know, things on social media. I tell the story in the book about um, one of the players that um, we work with, Gerard Delefeo, who, you know, when he was at Everton, um, you know, did a, did a fantastic, fantastic gesture. There was a, a boy that um, was um, videoed by his dad on social media wearing an Everton kit with Delefeo on the back during his time there. He unfortunately had um, cerebral palsy, but obviously was, you know, a massive Everton fan, loved playing football, was um, in the garden or in the park playing football and doing drills and stuff. And Gerard managed to contact the boy's family, get him down to Goodison, um, show him around, come out on the pitch at halftime, score a goal in the Gladys Street. That goal obviously goes into the goal of the month competition. He then wins goal of the month, which is which is brilliant. Um, he then comes back, I think, to collect this award. So 
all I mean is that the power sometimes that social media can bring um, to change people's lives, to be a power for good, um, and for um, you know just to show um, you know the positive side of the human spirit can be a you know really important and actually probably undervalued um, um, vehicle for for good. I would I would absolutely agree with that. I think there are so many examples of football for good in society. You mentioned Raheem Sterling's work. You've mentioned Hector Bellerin there, Gerard Delafeu. There's so many um, so many examples of that. We're seeing it more so arguably than ever at the moment with football clubs helping out um, vulnerable people in their communities. I saw a clip on social media today that Duncan Ferguson had contacted the, the family mm-hmm. of someone, an Everton fan who was terminally ill and and was speaking away to them and, and being really reassuring and supportive, which again, it, it just shows you the power of social media and, and the power of, of positivity. And and that kind of brings me on to something out with the book um, at the moment, something that's very important to you personally. You are associated with multiple charities, Football Aid being one of them, and 13, a cancer fashion brand being one of them as well. In terms of football for good and society for good explain how those charities work and what your role is within them yes i mean very briefly to football aid um i the, the backstory there is, is that that's um uh, it continues to be a fantastic charity that has agreements um with a whole host of premier league championship scottish and continental clubs that um they very kindly clubs give us um, uh, their pitch um, for usually a day or half a day uh, in the close season so that players and fans or other fans can live their dream um, bid to play on the pitch with the kit in the changing rooms, go and, um, you know, play on the hallowed turf, basically. And that's how I started off um, knowing about Football Aid back in 2003, I think it was, when I heard that you could play at Anfield, um, Liverpool's my team, um, on the on the pitch. So I, I um, borrowed some money from my dad <laughs> for a good cause, um, played uh, the second half um, at Anfield um, and still have some of the footage and photos, which is great memories of, um, and kept in touch with the team at Football Aid after I could help on a pro bono basis with helping with legal work free of charge, just as I was starting off in the legal industry. And it then just built from there, got more involved, um, met the, the current chief executive, a fantastic guy called David Dale, I know you've been in touch with as well. Um, I then uh, got asked, was privileged to join the board um, maybe about five or six years ago. And then I think maybe about two, two and a half years ago, I got asked to become chairman of the um, of the charity. So I just work closely with, with David and the rest of the board to try and uh, move the charity along, to uh, find new opportunities, to ensure that the charity um, uh, runs smoothly and to just to embrace new ideas and new new thinking. So um, that, that's football aid and that will hopefully, um, you know, football season permitting still uh, be able to put some events on over the, the course of the, the, the summer or autumn or um, as of when football, um, you know, calendar resumes. And, and the 13 charity um, is something that I'd sort of developed along with um, the rest of my family and, from you know a, a period of time in my life which wasn't particularly easy uh, when uh, my mum was diagnosed with uh, uterine cancer and then um, a little bit more recently with with lung cancer. So um, 
you know, as as men uh, generally, <laughs> we don't really like to talk about it, like to compartmentalize, like to just put it away, not talk about it, not really share, just um, uh, get on with, you know, your daily life. And, you know, I realized it got to a point where it was important actually to, to embrace it a bit more, to talk about it with mum and to talk about it with others. And 13 became quite an important vehicle for me to do that. So uh, towards the end of last year, um, where really I hadn't really talked about mum's illness or wanted to really bring it up uh, more generally. It, it sort of became an important element to fundraise more or less for mum's amazing um, oncologist, a gentleman called Dr. John Krell, um, and he's doing amazing cutting um, edge um, uh, genetic research into particular types of um, cancer treatments. And um, my idea was more or less just to form a, a relatively <laughs> lean um, uh, cancer research brand um, called 13. 13 is quite a lucky number in um, in my family, um, although it's quite a Marmite number, I know, to a lot of people. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, more or less just uh, started that as a print-on-demand um, um, project, and uh, the re response has been great. Lots of people have been very kind to have um, bought, um, bought gear um, to be able to help publicize the cause. I've got my first ambassador, um, Callum, which is you, which you were very kindly able to want to get involved. So thank you very much for that. And it's been, um, yeah, a really great process from the end, from towards the end of last year. Uh, and we've managed to raise, you know, a decent amount of money. The second phase of it is um, after doing a few talks, actually just to liaise with all of my different clients who are agents and players and just asking them for signed shirts. So, um Hopefully, once um, you know the, the world starts getting back to, to normal at some point, wherever that might be, um, I'm going to be auctioning off a pretty, hopefully, a pretty high-profile um, player signed, unworn um, football shirt once a month, um, which will hopefully raise some more funds for um, for the 13 cause, which is basically uh, Dr. John Krell's um, cancer research. So that's two of the the charities I um, I'm, I'm involved in. I want to stick on football for good and, and I want to bring it on to, to, to yourself and how you've helped me um, as you say I've came on board as an ambassador of 13 I'm absolutely privileged and honoured to be to, to be a part of that it's something that I really will ensure you that I take seriously because it's something that's a worthwhile cause but what I wanted to, to talk about was the fact that I reached out to you last year I, I've been honest and open I had a, a couple of, of difficult months a few challenges last, last year and I reached out to you because I had came across the book Done Deal. I'd saw it on online. Um, I'd saw people talking about it, and the business side of football has always fascinated me, especially with transfers, contracts, takeovers, um, and big business in football. So I was really interested to read your book and read your work. I, I discovered you online th through through um, through social media, and I do, as I say, last year I went through a tough spell, and I, I thought, do you know, I would like to send. I would like to send an email just just expressing how much I've enjoyed this this book, how much I've enjoyed this work, and I reached out to you, and I'll be very honest with you, you never expect to hear back when you send an email or maybe just a thank you, but you were very kind, you, you get back to me, you asked if you could give me a call, and, and since then you've encouraged me tenfold to set up Football CFB. I'm now 10 weeks into to CFB, I'm just approaching 15,000 listeners, and I can honestly say none of this would have been possible without your kind words, your support and your encouragement. So I just want to go on record 
while you're on the podcast and say thank you very much for everything you've done for me. Mate, it's um, look, it's it's I, I have been one percent in the um, in the grand scheme of things, but I think you know the thing that I was I was reflecting on um, in just preparing for the podcast um, was just thinking about uh, thinking back to. It was, I think it was just before or after Christmas, I think it was, yeah. when we had a couple of chats. And I remember our first chat, um, we, I think we probably talked for like half an hour, 45 minutes. And I think for probably about 42 of those minutes was just literally football. And I remember just thinking about like, this guy really knows his stuff. Um and you know, literally, I couldn't shut you up in a good way <laughs> um, because you were just, you know, you were, you had an incredible depth of knowledge. Um, you are, you were fantastically articulate, and you were deeply passionate about the topic. Um, and you could see you were really motivated. And I, I, re- I remember that sort of light bulb moment where we were chatting and coming towards the end of the conversation, and you said, and I said, I know what you've got to do next year, and you were like what and I remember just saying you've got to start a blog and you were like well what do I write about or you know I may, maybe you know no one's going to read it or you know maybe actually you know it's it's not for me because I'm going to put myself out there and what happens if people don't like it etc cetera, etc cetera. and very quickly and I didn't take too much persuasion actually um you I think literally the same day you had you had written a, a piece and the truth was is that you know you always try and I try and give a lot of advice to lots of different people and you know you hope that some people take it on and, uh, and you know ultimately some some won't as well but I remember um, when when it came through on my WhatsApp I think it was and the truth was at the same time you're always hoping that the person you know has put that the person has put a lot of time and effort into it actually it reads well that you know you you can you can help and it's not you know not necessarily a lost cause is the wrong word but you know that someone has you know spent the time and put the effort in and has got the knowledge and has really worked hard and actually the output then becomes really impressive and I remember reading your first piece I think it was on lower league insolvency if I remember rightly yeah. on um Barry and a few others and um and I was like this guy can write which is great <laughs> so I just remember thinking you know what you've got you know you've got a great combination of lots of different things and and more importantly or as importantly literally that motivation to push on and get the blogs out there and then suddenly I remember then having our next conversation you were like I'm going to start a podcast I was like that's a really good idea <laughs> because and um, that's something that I'd started and go on anchor and have a listen to that and do that and now literally I mean I'm it, it sounds really weird to say it's not really weird to say but it's just like I'm just very proud that I've done my very very small little bit to be able to help you get inside 10 weeks to to where you are and it's just um it's it's brilliant and it just shows i think and i know you've been spreading this message as well is that you know with some hard work dedication um time effort and real headspace to think about how you want to go about doing what you do um it's just um it's just absolutely blossomed for you and um you know 
long may it continue. I mean, literally, it's so funny. I look, I look at all your social media profiles every day, and you're doing something else incredible. Two days ago, it's a quiz. Another time, it's like putting content on your site for other people as a as a publishing tool. You know, every day there's something new, and it's like you, you're literally just a wealth of ideas. And we have to start coming to you for some of my ideas, I think, soon. So that's yeah, it's brilliant to see. Thank you very much. And as I say, I think. Since the, the encouragement and the advice you gave me from, from the very start, it's just, it's, it's grown arms and legs. And one thing I think has been, which, which has been incredible is the fact that you've been very honest and open. You've always been on the end of the phone. You've always been available, um, whether it's just a quick text or an email. And, and for that, I'm very appreciative because, as I say, it's important in life. We've talked about social media and platforms being used for good, I think. You helped me by using your platform for good. And as you've just said, when it comes to Football CFB and myself, I, I want to try and use my platform for good in any way I can. I was recently in a few local primary schools and basically the message I was trying to give to the kids was dare to dream. The only person who can stop you achieving your dream is you. And the two examples I used were Andrew Robertson and Billy Eilish. I mean, Andrew Robertson mm-hmm. was playing for Queen's Park in Scotland, amateur, about five or six years ago. He could easily have gave up football, but he didn't. Within six years, he's won the Champions League. You look at Billie Eilish, she was producing video content on on YouTube, I believe it was. She got some encouragement from her brother. Now she's winning Grammy Awards and doing the James Bond theme song. And and I think it's important to realise that you can achieve your dreams and that, okay, you might not, some people might not achieve their dreams to the extent they'd hoped, but I always think the advice I would give anyone now, and I'm sure you would, you would agree with this, is Go for your dream because even if you don't, even if you don't achieve it to the way it was in your head, at least you can look yourself in the mirror and say, Do you know, I tried my very best, and you'll get a lot of, a lot of gratitude out of trying. I think. I agree, and one of the things that I, um, I said to a lot of people, um, and I wrote in a, uh, one of my long blogs. I wrote on it was one of my first career sort of the blogs on uh, networking and processes and. Um, and enjoying uh, knowledge building, etc. Is I think you got exactly the right way, which is you've got to enjoy the process. You can't just suddenly think that the outcome is the is the end goal, and, and that's the thing I need, you need to strive for all the time. You've got to enjoy the process of creating, of thinking, of doing, and that and that's my ultimate thing. The books that I read over a long period of time, the act of doing is incredible. And it gets very addictive in a, in a real positive way. You, you know, the ability to be able to create, the ability to be able to put yourself out there. You know, I think there's so many people that are always going to be have that negative, which is, oh, your book's rubbish or your podcast's terrible or this or that. But the vast majority of people understand the value that you're bringing. But ultimately, you know, in a way, everybody's doing it in a positive way to further themselves, to be able to enjoy what they're doing, to be able to, you know, fix on something that is their passion, that they're willing to invest time on to motivate yourself further to be able to do, and ultimately to inspire other people that if I can do it, you can do it too. And that's, I think, the the amazing message that you're spreading, and it's, um, it's, it's a really important one, really important one. You, we've mentioned in this podcast quite a lot already the, the ever-changing landscape of the world through globalisation, social media, and I want to link this back now to done deal with, with football broadcasting. Broadcasting is something that in the book you've been been very good to go into to a lot of detail, over, over 30 pages of detail to, to be precise about the, the changing landscape, the fact that 
the Premier League was was um, formed in 1992. Um, B Sky B were uh, obviously the, the pioneers of live broadcasting. Since then, we've we've watched um, different companies dip in and out. Um, Satanta Sports have dipped in and out. BT, ESPN. But we reached a point last year where Amazon Prime got involved, and and that seems like it's going to be a vehicle for change in terms of broadcasting going forward. One of the things you said in the book which really resonated well with me was the fact that in 20 years' time, the idea of just watching a football match on a screen will probably seem rather outdated. Where do you see the game and broadcasting going in the next 10, 15 years potentially, based on the, the current growth we've had so far? Um, but I like just imagining seeing particular possibilities and the, the the picture I painted towards the end of the broadcasting chapter is effectively putting on uh, you know an augmented reality headset um, and you're you're you know you're effectively transported into your favorite or your childhood stadium or you effectively have a virtual season ticket so it feels it smells. Um, it looks like you're actually in the crowd, um, uh, and that's an experience you're going to be able to have within, out of thought, um, a decade or so at the most, um, so that you effectively can feel that you are a part of the action, that you can look left, look right, see things going on around you, um, and you can almost sense and feel the, um, the 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 presence of being at that stadium now. That might not and probably won't be for everybody. It still might be the traditionalists like me and you that want to go to the games, that want to be able to feel it in um, reality. And there may also be, you know, still a massive audience for, you know, getting together as friends um, uh, at pubs at home and doing the usual thing of, in our experience, watching television on a on a flat screen, however else it might be. But you know, if if I go back to my childhood, um, in the um, mid 80s you know the vast majority of games that I watched uh, I consumed were basically on the radio um, uh, so you know you fast forward um, um, a few decades and suddenly granted quite a few decades but um, you're you're seeing a very different content product whereas before it was radio and then was particular types of live satellite games, technology advancements will do things that we're probably not even aware could be done right now. Um, and I think the, the point generally being is that, you know, we're living in, I mean, one of the points in the book as well, just this in incredible infinite content age where there is so many different pieces of content and genres of content and entertainment content vying for our attention these days. And football and sport is just one of those um, parts of the entertainment pie. Um, it's a very important part for so many people, but ultimately it's um, um, one particular part. And so, you know, um, the, the best analogy I can give is that, you know, ultimately, every, and we're, we're talking about different types of generations, if it's millennials or centennials or Generation X or otherwise, talking about them having lower attention spans, not wanting to watch full games, only wanting highlights, being you know, second screening whilst you're watching something else, you're on WhatsApp or on other types of social media platforms, etc. No one can probably have imagined those type of um, things occurring 
10 or 15 years ago, or at least it was certainly not mainstream whatsoever because of obviously the uh, the advent of mobile technology, 4G networks, and uh, um, the OTT platforms like Amazon and others, as you mentioned. So um, I, th- I, I just think it's almost like, you know, we talk... Um, we talk like um, you know all the advance, not like all the advancements, but that the advancements we're so used to are going to remain when actually we're in such a dynamic, diverse technological space that we probably can't even imagine what will become the norm inside five or ten years. But whatever it is, um, people at the time will then say, "Well, it was obvious that that was going to be the case." But in hindsight, me, the seven or eight year old listening to the radio, I probably didn't think at that point that any and every game could be streamed live over the internet to come 25 years later. Before I finish with a round of quickfire questions, I just want to say that Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business, for me it's genuinely a book that I really enjoyed. As I say, I wrote to you before we even started talking, so I'm not just saying this because you're a good friend, I'm saying this because... Is a a fan of football and someone who is genuinely interested in the business side of football. For me, it it goes into detail and goes into depth about all this. It answers, in a way, when anyone writes a book, I always think, oh, they won't answer every single question I've got about the subject area. But I think Dundee really does that for me. It goes into detail on contracts, transfers, terminations, youth development, you name it, it's in there. And the last, last, last thing I want to ask you before the round of quick fire is, I got you can get the book obviously on Amazon. Is there anywhere else that people can pick up a copy? Yeah, so it's um yeah, I think Amazon's the easiest place and I think um of what I can probably do is uh get a, a couple of copies over to you. I know I need to get one copy over to you for the wins of the quiz, don't I as well? But um yeah, and there's a few audible codes that I can give you. So yeah, the easiest place is Amazon for um hard copy and soft copy. Um it's available available digitally um as well to be able to download on anyone's Kindle and it's available on Audible as well if anyone wants to listen to it. You'd be pleased to know it's not my voice on Audible, it's um actually someone that sounds half professional, so that's um, that's always a bonus. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, in terms of the quick fire question round, you mentioned you're a Liverpool fan. What's been your greatest moment as a Liverpool fan in your life, then? Um, I think it probably has to be uh, being in Istanbul uh, for, for obvious reasons. In terms of be honest, it's at half time. Are you seriously thinking there's any chance <laughs> of a comeback now? It's easy for you to say to sit to sit here now and say, "Oh, definitely, I've always thought there was a chance." Be honest, what did you think at halftime? Oh no, I was, I was. It was all for me. It was damage limitation. It was if we can maybe only lose this four four one or five one. I was actually. I remember thinking at the time, I was like, four is is manageable, but anything more than four looks like a real real trouncing. I mean, they just they cut us open like butter knife to butter, like almost for the whole game, really. And apart from those eight or nine minutes within reason, which was just you know incredible. But apart from that, we were just holding out for penalties. Um, and thank goodness we just about got there. But you know that's um, that was a freak evening where you know I've watched that back quite a few times now, and it is so dramatic simply because. Liverpool for long periods were so outplayed um, and ironically the reverse is also true when I was in Athens for the meet, meeting uh, Milan again where I, my view was we played a lot better than Milan um, but obviously we, we lost that one so I think I'll take one out of uh, one out of two not a bad ratio 
I must say it's the, the greatest game of football I've ever watched, which pains me to say as a Man United fan, but it genuinely, I think, was just in terms of drama and comeback story, I think it's it's hard to rival even now. Yeah, lucky enough there's a lot of games. I mean, I actually think the, the, the Barcelona game last season at Anfield has to be close up there as well as a, as a second. It was just one of the most remarkable games I've ever seen. Um, and being there at Anfield for, for that was totally spectacular. Who would you say was your childhood hero growing up? Um, I I loved watching um, Peter Beardsley. Um, that era of, of the Liverpool team with Barnes, Beardsley, Rush, McMahon, Aldridge, Halton. Um, and then obviously Hanson at the back as well was just incredible. But I, I, I probably missed just about missed Barnes in his prime before. I think he did his, had a bad Achilles injury and then he hit more or less didn't have the pace to be able to go past players as much and had to um, sort of reinvent himself as a, as a, as a sort of deep lying centre mid. But um, yeah, Beardsley and, um, and Barnes over that period were just sensational to watch. In your role, you obviously work with so many high profile. Um, people within the game who's been the most starstruck you've been when you've met them <laughs> well the, the truth is um, what actually happened a while back was I was um, at Anfield to watch a game um, but um, uh, for this game because we work with a few of the players we, we were lucky enough to get in to go to the, the players lounge um, and, and the truth was is that then there were just players all around just chatting and um, I, re- I remember you know the truth is is that as, you, as I'm a football lawyer that the reality is is that because I'm meeting players all the time that um, it, it's great but actually you, you begin to realize that there is human and as um, uh, normal um, as anybody else it's just you see them a lot more on the television and they tend to be a lot taller than you bearing in mind I'm quite small as well <laughs> so um it's it's more actually that I don't think I get too starstruck um, as a fan. I think it's actually that um, it's just really interesting to see how um, they are as human beings and um, the the amount of good that a lot of the time that they do, which doesn't get seen. It's like you know, so many of these guys are giving huge amounts of money to charity, but they don't want anyone to know about it. All these guys will spend ten, fifteen minutes chatting to the you know, the fans outside, um, you know, the coach and sign, make time to sign autographs and, and do all that type of stuff because they know that that makes such a difference to people. So look, I'm not one for selfies um, and I'm not really going to um, be the, the, the person that does that. But at the same time, I very much appreciate the, the good stuff that they do, which makes a real difference. Other than Anfield, what would you say is your favourite ground to watch football at? I really like the Millennial Stadium simply because when it, that was a period um, where Liverpool's kept on getting to Cardiff so often <laughs> um, around uh, yeah around that 2001 onwards period. So I have really good memories of um, yeah of Cardiff for those those periods of time as well. What's been the best goal you've ever seen from a Liverpool perspective? What's the goal in your lifetime that stands out as the go-to goal if you're imagining a a good moment in football? I still love that 
McDermott goal that uh, he scored. I think it was against Spurs. It was like four touches at Anfield. I, I obviously wasn't there watching it, but when I was when I was growing up, um, the the thing that I used to literally watch probably once a week at least for the entirety of my childhood on VHS tape was the um, official history of Liverpool. So um, I used to know all the goals, the commentary, um, the players and everything. And I just always remember um, that goal being one that stands out as one of the, the best goals ever scored by uh, by Liverpool. And um, yeah, that, that sort of stands out, even if it wasn't necessarily live. I'll have to think about that live one. Come back to me on that one. I'll keep going. <laughs> Last question I've got for you. I'm going to put you on the spot list for this one. You can pick a Liverpool five-a-side team. You need to be in the team, so you can only pick four other Liverpool players who have played in your lifetime to play alongside you. Who gets in the team? Well, I'm not sure they'd be happy playing with me, but um, let's just say I go in goal, then I think then and then I can have four four outfields. Um, I would, yeah, I have to have Van Dijk. Um, have to have Gerard. Have to have Suarez. Um, I would have Alonso, I think. Sounds like a great team. And who would manage that team? It'd have to be Klopp, I think, wouldn't it? Good point. Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, pal, and look forward to the next one. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will